Thank you, and thank you to the Bodleian Library, and thank you for this Bird Bussy Fellowship scheme uh, for allowing uh, me to have a wonderful research experience here in Oxford for a quite substantial period of time for me. And uh, I have been involved in my Marconi studies with, the, uh, with what Marconi did in the second part of his life, uh, I have been especially interested in what he did uh, with his industrial adventure. Uh, usually, the second part of Marconi's mm -hmm. life, saying what he did after World War I, is usually overlooked by scholars. And uh, when, he's, when they are interested in it, they are more interested in things like his relationship with the fascist government. Okay. In his relationship with the fascist government and in the complicated uh, schemes of his uh, love relations and <laughs> marriage and things like that. But actually, I think that what Marconi did after World War I is not less important of what he did uh, at the beginning of his career. And uh, it was a substantial step to shape the world of telecommunications in the way we know it now. Marconi was a visionary, uh, one of the scientists acknowledging this, and it's a scientist with whom Marconi had a special uh, link, is Enrico Fermi. Uh, everyone knows, he wrote, that Marconi's discoveries were initially met with skepticism in the scientific community. It was lucky for humankind that these arguments that might seem a priori reasonable and well-founded did not prevent Marconi from experimenting with long-distance transmissions. Innumerable researches and discussions, both theoretical and practical in nature, have developed in physics as a result of early fundamental experiences on radio transmission. Enrico Fermi was writing this word, uh, these words uh, one year after Marconi's death and one year before being awarded himself the Physics Nobel Prize, which he got <laughs> in 1939. Now, what was Marconi imagining in 1919 at the end of World War I and while the uh, negotiations for the peace conference were going on in Paris? Uh, he, he tells us something in his ghost-written autobiography, which is very well known among Marconi scholars. It's called the so This Ousa Manuscript, and he's kept here in the Bodleian Library in the Marconi archives. And he talks in chapter 20, which is the final chapter of the memoir, which he dictated in 1919, though the adventure of the manuscript would be worth uh, <laughs> something uh, in itself, long talk. 
the oncoming development of wireless will take advantage of what was considered at the beginning a nuisance. Short waves, which were too weak to be used for long distance, it was thought, and broadcasting because the problem at the <coughs> beginning was to ensure a point-to-point -point communication without interference and without other people listening to what you were saying. So one of the first patents Marconi took after the first wireless patent was a patent on Synthony. Uh, he wanted to go on with his research on the yacht Elettra. This is the real reason why he bought it. Uh, in another manuscript, unpublished manuscript, which is partially kept in Marconi archives, uh, he, was, um, he was interviewed by a journalist, Harold Begbie, and he told him uh, that as Darwin used the Beagle, I'm going to sail away from cities and in quiet bays and inlets conduct certain experiments which I permit myself to dream may carry the world a little farther forward on the road of discovery. So he knew very well what he was doing. Uh, what he was talking about was the development of what was to be called the beam system, which is short wave uh, concentrated in a beam and directionally used for transmission. Uh, short waves, he had abandoned short waves in 18, 96, but he resumed working on short waves in 1915-1916 because he was experimenting uh, for military uh, appliances and short waves were looked very promising for this because to for operation and small field operations and so on. And with uh, an, an engineer of the company, Charles Samuel Franklin, uh, they realized that when they were concentrated in a directional beam, uh, Franklin was the man who uh, understood how this could be done, uh, they had unexpected properties. And this is what Marconi went on experimenting after the war between 1919 and 1923. So the Yacht Elettra was, of course, a floating house, but at the same time, and mostly it was a floating laboratory. The use of these laboratories uh, was told by Richard Vivian. Richard Norma Vivian was a chief engineer of the company. Uh, and he says in his book, Wireless Over 30 Years, which was published by 1933, a moving station for purposes of observation and measurement possesses great advantages over a fixed station. Many months' investigation were undoubtedly saved by the use of Marconi's yacht for this purpose. And this is also the reason why the company was paying for the yacht. Marconi was very optimistic. He was on very good terms and he went along very well with the managing director of the company. The Marconi company has been on financial strained conditions for the whole his history. <laughs> at least until 1927-28. And uh, Isaacs uh, was very good in keeping the company going on and keeping the research and development activity on the company going on, notwithstanding the constant financial strain of the company. And Marconi was very confident that he could be stop worrying 
about the financial things. I, I don't have to worry, he said to Begbie in 1919, about the commercial side of things and the days when I had to race up and down the world trying to demonstrate what could be done with wireless are over. This demonstrated to be a very, very uh, wealth, uh, badly founded optimism. Uh, 1924-1927, uh, he convinced the British government that uh, his dream of building an imperial wireless network could be achieved by using the beam system. Uh, he made a contract, a very difficult contract, because the general post office pushed to have very strict conditions of the company, so the company took a very big risk to develop the system and to build the chain. And in, by 1997, the result was achieved. The people working on this were Charles Franklin for the transmitting part, Gaston Mathieu, who was uh, perhaps the personal uh, technical assistant, which went along better with Marconi, and Richard Vivian, who was also a friend of Marconi, besides being an engineer, he had network design and he was the central responsible for the network building. Now, what was the outcome of all this? The financial uh, effort the company had to make was a huge effort, an incredibly great effort. Uh, at the end, it turned out that the BIM system uh, was really a big step forward as Marconi had dreamed. Uh, what was the use of this big step? In the time when long distances transmission with wireless were done with long waves, always longer and longer and longer, uh, were very expensive. So the wireless was confined to certain niche uh, commercial uh, business, certain niches of commercial traffic, which were the traffic uh, going on between things which could not be connected for economic or political reason through the cables, and the other niche was the communication between uh, land and boat, which was the original uh, reason for wireless research. Uh, but it, was never, it never achieved a commercial price competitiveness to the cable companies. But with the BIM system, the cost of wireless was substantially cut, very substantially. And so suddenly, with the BIM system, the wireless communication became competitive even for price on cable traffic. And this was a danger not only for the cable companies, but for the governments, for the British government, US government, and so on, which were afraid of leaving what was becoming a strategic asset in the hands of a private company, which, in addition to other things, had been stained by the Marconi affair before the war, and whose image had never been really cleaned. So after World War I, the f there was a first try to uh, 
take control of telecommunication uh, or, or wireless assets from the Marconi company in the United States, uh, the, go the American government actually uh, forces the company to an agreement with General Electric interests for formation of the Radio Corporation of America, where the Marconi company had only a minority share. The same thing did the British government in 1927-1928. There was a merger between the Marconi company and the Eastern Telegraph. This was not just a simple merger, but this was a total change in the business model of uh, telecommunications. Uh, the whole business was organized in a way very different from before. Uh, a holding was created where there was the holding company was controlling an operating company and owning the network. And this was the cable and wireless. Then there was another operating company which was Imperial International Communications. And the Marconi company only took a minority participation in all the scheme because it kept, while, uh, whereas the Eastern Telegraph was completely absorbed in this merger, the Marconi company kept its independence somehow. It continued its existence, but why? Because uh, it maintained the control over the development and supply of the equipment. So it was committed to cable and wireless and imperial and international communications, but at the same time it was uh, autonomous as far as uh, the research and development of equipment was concerned. Uh, but it was a real change because before this, Telephone, telegraph, and wireless were three different sectors with three different international <coughs> unions, different international regulations, different business activities. Uh, whereas now the whole things started integrating. Uh, all the new words, uh, radio and telecommunications, started to be used in 1999 uh, after World War One. So uh, we have them already in existence in 1919. Uh, the Madrid conference uh, gave a different definition for telecommunication, saying any telegraphic or telephonic communication of signs, signals, writing, facsimiles, and sounds of any kind by wire, wireless, or other systems or processes of electric or visual signaling. To say, to, uh, something which is telling of how dramatically the business model changed is the fact that not only there was a new definition in international law of what telecommunication was, but that the three international unions were merged in one union, uh, in which was now charged with all the regulatory affair. And this was the uh, origin of the International Telecommunication Union, which was established in 1932 in Madrid and became effective in 1934. Now, uh, what happened to the Marconi Company after the merger? The first thing is that the core business of the British Marconi Company, which had been both equipment and commercial traffic, the commercial traffic side was no longer in existence. So it was the business 
of equipment development and production. This should have given to research and development inside the company a very important role, but it did not. Why did not? Because the board of directors had no technical people in it. There were no longer, I mean, the only technical person in the board of directors was Marconi, but Marconi was kept in the board of directors only because he was a brand name. Uh, the, uh, there are documents which say, w where people say, well, okay, how much is this, how much is worth Marconi's name? It was worth, say, 25% of the worth of the company. So it was useful, keep him and give him money and try to give him money and try to keep him out of work because when he worked, he costed. <laughs> so the company slowly started withdrawing support for Marconi research and the most dramatic step was when Marconi was deprived of financial support for the yacht in 1935 and the company recalled his technical assistants. Uh, Mathieu and Isted were called back from Italy where they were working with Marconi to uh, London, Isted and to uh, the, Czech, uh, the Czechoslovakia was sent Mathieu. Uh, so Marconi was not very satisfied in the final part of his life and maybe this was part of the reason. Uh, however, working with the BIM system had very, very important scientific effects as it had had at the beginning. Uh, still Enrico Fermi writes that the examination of reflections of waves sent upwards as a function of frequency can allow to determine the concentration of electrons in the layers that cause reflection, let's say, in the upper atmosphere. Since many years, this kind of observations have been systematically run in many observatories. Actually, to make the, uh, the beam system work, you always had to monitor, mon constant monitoring of the ionosphere because uh, it, its uh, behavior in reflecting the uh, waves was changing according to uh, the, to its conditions and so the monitoring was essential to keep the service going on and monitoring activities were started in every country in the world and first was started in the in, uh, United States but soon in UK and in Italy and so on. Uh, it's, it has been uh, very, very important to work in the Marconi archives and to work on the Marconi heritage is a very, very uh, complicated heritage from the point of view of the typologies of its composition, the traditional archives, instruments, journals, books, press reviews, commercial ads. Uh, they are telling for a wide range of subjects and also uh, they are important in general, beyond the Marconi history, because it, it, the Marconi archives is some hundred boxes on Marconi, but some thousands of boxes on the industrial activity connected to the Marconi company activity. Uh, this is th this for the archives. The main archives 
I mean, Marconi archives are spread all over the world. The main bodies are here in Oxford, the most important one, and in Rome, uh, which is only the 1930s, but is important for his political activity. Main instrument collections are, again, in Oxford, the most important one. And another one in Milan, at the Museo Nazionale della Scienza e della Tecnica, where uh, some copies of Marconi instruments are kept, uh, which are not originals, but they originate from Marconi. It was Marconi who, was, who wanted to take care of his legacy, who developed this and uh, had the uh, museum, it's a long history too. Yeah. So having this heritage interconnected is a challenge that must be uh, dealt with sooner or later. And last, let me say something about the biography of Marconi of Marco Aboy, which was published and became available just a few weeks ago. Uh, I think uh, this is a scholarly biography which will be a reference work for all Marconi scholars uh, for a long time. And it's the first scholarly biography which recognizes the importance of Marconi's work in the period following World War I. It's the first time that this is being done, and it's being done in a good way. Of course, he, had, uh, he worked everywhere, but the most substantial part of his work was here in Oxford, and the book is published by the Oxford University Press. So <laughs> thank you for your attention. <laughs>